The Cape Up Podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post Brand Studio. Coming soon to wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Cape Up. When you hear talk of the Kennedy Center, you probably think of the star-studded Kennedy Center honors. But it's much more than that. Deborah Rutter, president of the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts, walks us through everything, from installing the first-ever artistic advisor for hip-hop to the challenges of being the local performing arts center for the nation's capital. And you can hear it all right now. Deborah Rutter, thank you very much for being on the podcast. I'm so delighted to be here with you. So I'm sure you know this, but when people think about or hear about the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts, they instantly think of the Kennedy Center honors. What exactly are the honors and, and who's being honored? Well, the honors are the greatest weekend of the year, and it is also sort of the bane of our existence (laughs) because we really like to think about the other 364 days of the year as well and all of the programming that happens on those days. But it is a very special weekend. And in fact, in some cases, we like to think about the whole weekend as a homecoming. It's when friends and family and people who are engaged with the Kennedy Center, both as artists and as individuals come to the Kennedy Center to celebrate the arts and the arts in America. So it really has become a very special moment, as you say, for everybody in the country because they get to watch it on television and celebrate it with us. It is a time where we celebrate all of the arts, not any one art over the other. In fact, we make sure we try and rotate it over a period of time to make sure that All types of art are being celebrated. All of the performing arts, I should say, are being celebrated. And this year, the celebrants are Carmen de Lavalade, who's this magnificently beautiful, talented dancer, actress, um, uh, performer, sort of all-encompassing performer. Um, LL Cool J is our first uh, hip-hop rap musician. The very first? The very first. So that's a big, big thing for us. He's also the youngest because he won't yet turn 50 until January of 2018. Um, And Norman Lear, who I think is our oldest and has had such a huge impact on uh, America and American society through television and his his vision for how to connect people. Uh, Gloria Estefan, um, who is this magnificent uh, performer, dancer, singer, really changed the way we think about Latin music and music. Um, And then Lionel Richie, who is sort of the songbook of our lives. Um, I'm just so thrilled to welcome these artists. Are you going to be dancing on the ceiling? We are going (laughs) to be dancing all weekend long and singing along as well. So um, so it, this is a, a big event, but as uh, you know, I've said before, this is the one thing that everybody knows about the Kennedy Center. And you alluded to this in, in your answer, saying that there are other things that happen 364 days in the year. Um, what are they? 
Exactly. Well, what I love about being here at the Nation's Cultural Center is that we have really a mandate to welcome all of the performing arts. It is not just a performing arts center for uh, one assumed art form or another. Yes, we have a symphony orchestra, the, the fantastic National Symphony Orchestra. Yes, we have an international opera company, the Washington National Opera. We have a magnificent you know, world-recognized uh, ballet season. We have contemporary dance. We have jazz. We have a huge jazz series. Um, chamber music, uh, recitals, comedy, um, international programming. So literally programming from around the world here. And then much loved our theater and our musical theater season as well. So there really isn't any piece of the, of the arts that are, are missing here. Most recently and much discussed is the fact that we now have an artistic advisor for hip hop and um, a whole team that support his vision. This is a first. Yes, this is a first. And as far as I know, there is no other artistic director for hip hop anywhere in the country, anywhere in probably the world. And we're very proud to have Q-Tip here leading, guiding and inspiring Where us. Did, so I want to stop you on this point. Where did the idea come from to have an artistic director for, for hip hop? And how did you convince Q-Tip to do it? Well, when I first came to the center, what I really felt that I wanted to have as one of my first sort of moments and ways that I could influence uh, what people thought about the Kennedy Center was to elevate the position and the voice of the artist across the institution. Now, you can't have a performing arts institution without lots of artists, obviously, but to really demonstrate that artistic leaders were going to play an important role guiding and influencing what happened here at the center. So I appointed a composer in residence, Mason Bates, the first ever at the Kennedy Center. Uh, we do lots of contemporary music, but we don't necessarily have a com composer in residence until now. We brought several other important artists to the center, Yo-Yo uh, uh, Ma and Renee Fleming, and um, brought another really fantastic, innovative artist, uh, Damien Wetzel, to do oh, yeah. work with us. And then I met with all of them individually and said, talk to me about what you think is happening in America. And as you go out into the world, travel around the world, what you think is really important and what the trends are and what we should really be focusing on. And Jason Moran, who is our uh, artistic director for jazz, came back and sat in my office with me and said, I think we need to expand our horizons just a little bit. Um, we have a, a long history of programming and very successful programming here, but I think we should recognize the fact that hip hop has been around for decades and decades. This is not an emerging art form. This is an, an established art form. And you here at the Kennedy Center, we collectively have been presenting um, this music, this art form um, in a variety of different settings a festival with the National Symphony Orchestra, um, for smaller uh, spoken word festivals, perhaps we need to now take it to the next level. So it was really his um, inspiration hmm. that he pitched to me. We talked about it here as an organization 
explored it a little bit further because we had been doing so much already, but it was sort of plucked from the stratosphere and brought here to the center and committed that we really needed to do this. Um, and I will say that there were a variety of external forces that in conversation had some influence in, in that as well. And I will be open in saying, I didn't know what it was gonna look like or feel like, but it felt right to listen to Jason and to listen to his voice affirmed by others. So th these external forces, um, were there any people who were resistant to, to this idea? Well, I will tell you that anybody who loves one art form can passionately, can feel threatened if you are bringing another art form into the, the, the Performing Arts Center here. Um, and I say can because it doesn't mean they will, but they could. And I will say that there have been individuals, patrons, other parts of our in, uh, institution who've said, well, gosh, what does that mean? Does that mean that we'll have less of blank, whatever it might be? And the answer, of course, is no. This is additive. We are bringing this in, and it is enhancing everything that we're doing. So just because we are bringing in more programming that includes hip-hop artists, it does not mean that we're doing less dance or less uh, international programming or less of the National Symphony Orchestra. It just means that we're doing more, that we have thrown open the doors of the Kennedy Center and we are ensuring that all are welcome here. So um, on external forces, and it makes me think, since, since this is the Kennedy Center, it's in Washington, I wonder how much of a, of a role or influence does Congress have or does the White House have on what you on what you do here? Well, this this is a, a great question because um, it is the question that I'm asked by my colleagues. Having worked more than 30 years in other parts of this country, I have lots of colleagues all over and they want to know what is the difference by working here? Well, it's it's quite interesting because um, I would also say that we have quite a number of, of justices from the Supreme Court who uh, walk through these front doors to attend performances. So we have a lot of different people who um, seem far away from the average person in America, but who are very present and who come to the Kennedy Center because it's their local performing arts center. And if they want to hear, you know, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, they're coming here to the Kennedy Center to hear it or to see an opera or a ballet. Um, but there is no uh, influence per se. Um, but I will tell you that every patron I talk to has influence on me. So every time I talk to somebody who comes and say, I loved seeing The Sound of Music, or I loved hearing Romeo and Juliet with the National Symphony, or Aida was magnificent, or my gosh, it was so fantastic to finally see Q-Tip here at the Kennedy Center. Each person has an influence on me and how they describe what their experience was like. So I won't tell you that it doesn't go unnoticed when I get an email from a congressperson or um, somebody in the administration or, you know, 
sitting with a member of the Supreme Court who might say, I really loved this because it's fascinating for me to have those kinds of conversations, but there is absolutely no influence. And in fact, I think they want to make sure that they don't have any influence on the programming that takes place here. So how many stages are there here at the Kennedy Center? Because I can think of the Opera House, the where the symphony performs, that's two, um, but I think there are more. So that's a that's a great question and a leading question. Perfect. Thank you. Uh, there are nine performance Wait, spaces. Nine. Nine performance spaces. You have the Opera House, the Concert Hall, the Eisenhower Theater, the Family Theater, the Terrace Theater, the Theater Lab, two Millennium Stages. Um, actually, I think I just came up with 10. <laughs> oh, my gosh, I've been saying 10. Um, and, and the atrium, which is a big um, like banquet room type space, but it is often created into a club kind of experience. And then the terrace gallery. Oh, I've broken my own rule. Maybe I need to call the Millennium Stage one stage. But there are two stages of Millennium Stage. Right, because there's one at each end of the... Of the foyer. Right. Exactly. Right. And so we have two spaces that are like what we in the business call black boxes, i.e. they can be transformed into different kinds of settings, both um, like a cabaret style or a club style or a stage and, a, uh, and, and performance spaces. So nine, nine, technically 10 actual performance spaces here at the center. And you can never have all 10 at once because you can't have the two millennium stages going and you would rarely ever have the terrace gallery and the atrium going at the same time. But sometimes for our festivals, we have occupied all of those spaces and it is an exciting place to be, I will tell you. So then where do all the ideas come from to fill all of those spaces. I mean, the Opera House, I get it. You have the Opera and the Concert Hall, you've got the National Symphony Orchestra. But what's performed on Millennium Stage and what goes on the, in the Terrace Theater and right. in, in the atrium? So we in our business think of uh, all of these spaces as our primary assets. And on top of that, the, un, the other assets then, of course, are the National Symphony Orchestra and the Washington National Opera. Um, and those two, the opera and the orchestra, certainly play an, a central role as our flagship institutions here at the center. But we have nine other programmers who are brilliant in curating programs. In, you know, so we have one that specializes in dance and ballet, one who does international programming and also some dance and theater because of the international aspect of it. Um, special programming that does all of the unusual contemporary programming and comedy and the big events that we have, jazz, chamber music and classical music programming, hip hop, theater. Um, so we have a wide, wide variety. And then on top of it, we have a team who focus on community engagement, these special big festivals, and the daily free programming on Millennium Stage. How many people are involved in the decision-making? When it comes to all of these things that you were just talking about, do you have a, a tight team, day-to-day -day team, where you sit at this conference table where we're, where we're sitting now in your office here at the Kennedy Center, and you hash out the next 
uh, the programs for what two years out? How far out do you go? That's the first question. And then who who are the folks who are sitting around the table making those decisions? So it, it, what's really interesting of all of those programs that you just mentioned and that we've been speaking about have different timelines. So we actually could be still adding something that will happen in four or six or eight weeks. And so there are there's a very short time horizon for some of the more contemporary culture programs. Um, and jazz even is really only about a year out. Um, but the opera is two, three years out, sometimes four years out. The orchestra is many years out as well. So what's really interesting is this sort of cobbling together of the, the building that then becomes the, the performance season itself. Um, and so there are, it's really an interesting um, uh, parallel because we have all of the individuals who lead the programming for the main stage ticketed events, the sort of adult programming as it were. And then we have a parallel for most of that in the world of education. And so um, we have two sets of meetings. The education programming team get together and they plan and the um, others that I just mentioned have a department called artistic planning here at the center and they do their planning and then the two come together so that we have this integration of the educational activities together with the, the, the stuff that you see in the ads and on our, our website as well. So for instance, um, we have themes that go through the whole season that very much appear in the education programming as well as on the main stages. Uh, who are your, your peers? And by your, I mean the Kennedy Center's peers in, yeah, well, around the world and the country? Arts, performing arts centers exist in many, if not most, big uh, cities of the world. Um, there are very few, if any, who have the scope of programming that we have, and I am yet to find an organization that has all of these programs within one organization. So I was just in London a couple of weeks ago, and I visited the South Bank Center. Again, a, a fantastic performing arts center offering a wide variety of all the arts. But most of the programming takes place from outside organizations coming in, using the space, and, and presenting themselves in the space. They might be resident at the South Bank, but they do it on their own. Whereas the benefit here is that we can sit with the National Symphony Orchestra and the Washington National Opera and all of these other programs, theater, dance, contemporary art, and build a season together. And so it can offer a, a, a cohesive story um, of what's going on in America and what's going on in the arts around the world here at the center in the nation's capital. How involved is the international community? Because, I mean, this is a local performing arts center, but it's in the capital of the of the United States with, what, about 180 um, embassies from around the world here. How involved is the diplomatic corps in what you do here? Well, this is a part of the, the job that I thought a little bit about, but I didn't realize the extent of it um, until I was here and doing what I'm doing. We have a very, very close relationship with the diplomatic community um, and also with the State Department, because obviously we love to have that connection with State Department so that when 
we are traveling and taking our orchestra or our young singers or dancers around the world. They are involved with supporting that effort. But more importantly, when they are bringing um, artists from around the world, we can present them here at the Kennedy Center. As it comes to the embassies, the relationship with the diplomatic community here is truly magnificent. Um, when we do an international festival, we have a very close tie. And in fact, we rarely do an international festival without a very close, I would say, intimate relationship with the embassy to make sure we're really doing the right thing by presenting that art form, that country, that part of the world here at the center. Um, but it could be individual artists. It could be a whole series of uh, touring troupe um, that is then hosted by the um, local diplomatic community. Um, we have a big centennial of Ingmar Bergman, and Liv Ullman is here with the Norwegian Theater Company. And the celebration that's happening both with the Swedish and the Norwegians <laughs> in the coming weeks has been magnificent. And that kind of celebration can only happen in this way here. Now, when I've worked at other in other parts of the country, um, we always sort of longed for that kind of international recognition. And I can tell you that when I was at the Chicago Symphony and Ricardo Muti um, as our music director. You left out the great Carlo Muti. <laughs> yeah, the, the great, the extraordinary <laughs> Ricardo Muti um, uh, would host the ambassador, the Italian ambassador, to come to and grace, you know, us at uh, Orchestra Hall in Chicago. Here, the ambassador is here all the time. He's a fantastic, <laughs> good friend. He's practically a neighbor. It feels that way. And that's what's really special about being here at the Kennedy Center. They come to us with ideas, and all of them do. Um, large countries, small countries, we have a really close relationship, and they really come to the center quite often. Does that get to be a little tough sometimes? I mean, you, you, you are here basically in this this magnet with all of these people around who have tons and tons of ideas. You must get you must get flooded with things. Does it ever become a situation where you're like, I wish I could go back to wherever where I was left <laughs> left alone and could do my job without all Jeff, of these other competing yeah. forces? Jonathan, that's a really really great question. Um, uh, the answer is absolutely not, and the reason is because. I spent more than three decades working with orchestras, and I love the art form. I love the repertoire. I am a recovering, you know, performer. You played myself. the violin, right? I did, and I really am passionate about the art form um, and what it feels like and the whole experience. But I will tell you that when you can think about the role of all of the arts and how it brings people from around the world together. And the fact that here at the center, we have no limits on what we can present. So if I had a really great proposal that came to me from some part of the world, I would always have to look at it through the lens of, should an orchestra be presenting this? Or how can this be incorporated into an orchestra's season? And it didn't always work. And I often would have to say no to a really great idea because it didn't work for me with that institution. But here at the center, 
where we really have no limits other than financial. Does it make yeah, sense right. financially? Can we fit it into the season? Logistical. And who's the audience? But if it's a great idea, sometimes you want to build the audience for it. So we are in a pretty uniquely wonderful circumstance. And so um, the problems I always describe is how to say no, when to say no, and um, how to not be really truly overwhelmed by the extraordinary, limitless uh, richness of what happens here. So then how do you deal deal with that? Because I mean, you you came into this interview having already been to I don't know how many how many meetings. Mm -hmm. That's how your day is, begins, and then when the evening comes, you mention all those stages, whether it's nine or ten. Right. <laughs> but there are all these things happening. Like, do you like how do you keep how do you keep charged? How do you keep the energy up to do all of these things every day? Well. Um, I have really, really exceptional co colleagues who are the artistic leaders of the various art forms, and I um, have complete faith in their capacity to make great decisions about who to bring and when and how and how to present. For me, it's about understanding what's happening um, across the institution how our patrons are experiencing it. And so for me, what's really great is I get to go to all of these performances. Oh, you get to go and, and enjoy and I, them. And I really, really do. I am the biggest patron of the Kennedy Center. Um, uh, and, and the benefit is that I can go in and I can stay for the first half of a ballet performance and then I can go to the second half of um, a comedy show or I can go to the first half of a chamber music concert and the second half of, uh, you know, the, the NSO performance. And most of the time I like to go to one place and stay because then you get the whole right. experience. But some nights when you have five or six things going on and they're only there for a limited period of time, then I need to be able to move around. The good news is sometimes we have a long run of an opera or a week long run with a ballet company and I can go on Monday to this and then on Friday to something else. So the one thing we have not talked about in this entire conversation, is that not only is this a performing arts center, it's a memorial. Right. So thank you. Um, this is the, if, if I can do one thing, well, maybe not one thing. If I can do three things, one of the things I will do is ensure that everyone in America knows that the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts is the memorial to John F. Kennedy. It is really important to me to be able to talk about why a performing arts center would have been named for a president, why he believed in it, what he believed in, and the role of the arts in our society. Um, we actually think of ourselves as having three um, pillars to our identity. The first, of course, the Performing Arts Center and world-class arts that we've been talking about for all this time. The second, um, which is really about what the mandate when we were authorized by Congress back in the 50s was about being an advocate for arts education. Think about it. In the 1950s, they said the Kennedy Center will be a national advocate for arts education, and it is a huge part of the programming that we have here. Um, and the third is then maybe what you should lead with, which is that we are the memorial to John F. Kennedy. Deborah Rudder, president of the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts, thank you very much for being here. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Been great to talk with you. 
Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. Hello, I'm Dan Lamoth, a national security writer here at The Washington Post. I'm the host of our newest podcast, Letters from War. It's the story of a family of brothers fighting in World War II. It is told mostly through the hundreds of letters that they wrote to each other. The letters detail everything from the Great Depression to their favorite baseball team, the Chicago Cubs, to the horrors of combat that they themselves saw. In this podcast, modern-day veterans will read the parts of the brothers. And at times, they will relate their own experiences to what they're reading. Check it out on WashingtonPost.com slash Letters from War. The Washington 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 Post. Post.